You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke and experience true discipleship. Today's scripture is from Matthew 12, 38 through 50. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and it takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is a word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all. Um, you know, there's a, <clears throat> there's a challenge for us whenever we open the scriptures. And, uh, and it's particularly acute in a passage like this. We, whether we like it or not, we're creatures of modernity. And modernity shapes our thinking. It shapes the way that we understand the scriptures. It shapes the way we read the scriptures. It shapes the way we respond to the scriptures. So I want you to imagine the gap between a first century listener of Jesus and ourselves. Imagine yourself for instance, on the road at night. What are you afraid of? You're afraid of your car breaking down. You're afraid of criminals. Maybe there's an ax murderer in the woods. You're afraid of animals. Maybe there's a bear. Maybe there's a mountain lion. Now, <clears throat> if you're a first century person, you have some of those same fears. Criminals, bandits, thieves, etc., on the road at night. But you're also afraid of evil spirits. You're afraid of curses. You're afraid of monsters. See, we experience the world through the lens of what the philosopher Charles Taylor calls a buffered self, a sense that our bodies and our souls are insulated from the invisible evil factors in the world. But we're also insulated from some of the transcendent things that happen in our world. It makes the world a less interesting place. There's less room for beauty, less room for transcendence, less of a reason to let the good moments of life take our breath away. So a baby is born, and what do we do? Are we stunned at the wonder of it, or is it just one more biological process working itself out? You fall in love, is it just pheromones and hormones? You're stunned by a piece of art, is this just a trick of the artist to tweak your senses, or is something more going on? In some way, these are questions that human beings have always reckoned with, 
but they're made more potent now because we have the whole of modernity to explain them away, to give us a scientific answer, to give us a rational answer for all of this. Nothing else is going on loud and clear in the background of our lives. And this isn't something that just affects non-Christians, it affects Christians too. We're prone to what Taylor calls disenchantment. It insulates us from our own faith. So when we come to a passage like the one that we read today, it's helpful to see that we approach it in a different way than even the folks in this story are approaching it. Again, they're walking through the dark, afraid of evil spirits and monsters, and we are only afraid of what we can verify, like crazy people. (laughs) Now consider what's happening so far in chapter 12. Jesus has healed a man with a shriveled hand, he's cast out a demon, and he's made a rational defense, as we saw last week, about why he's not doing this with the power of the devil or the power of a sorcerer, but he's doing this in the name of of God. So then the same Pharisees who've been accusing him of all kinds of wrongdoing suddenly address him as teacher or rabbi. Has there been a change of heart? The answer is no. (laughs) The answer is no. They're being disingenuous and they're using a term sarcastically trying to provoke him and they're asking him for a sign. And it's a temptation that all of us experience. All of us experience this temptation, this, this desire to see God give us a sign that proves something to us, that's an answer to a prayer or a, a rational or, a, or a, an experiential reality where we know for sure that Jesus is who he says he is and that God is there and, and that's what we desire. And so Jesus answers this in a very interesting way, in a way that I think is profound for us. Um, There's some interesting discussion among scholars about what they mean when they ask for a sign. He's healed a man's shriveled hand, he's cast out a demon, but they're asking for a sign. So what some scholars do is they differentiate between signs and miracles. Uh, By a sign, they don't mean the same thing as a miracle. They've seen the miracles. Rather than that, they mean that he would make some sort of manifestation happen that would have proved once for and for all who he was. In Matthew's gospel, two examples of this would be what happened at Jesus' baptism when the spirit of God descends on him and God speaks and says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Another example of this would be the transfiguration when Jesus goes up the mountain with two of his disciples and his glory is revealed and he meets with Moses and Elijah. So what some suggest is that the Pharisees were asking for that. They're saying, okay, we've seen you do these things. We've accused you of doing them in the name of the devil. You say you're not. Teacher, which they say sarcastically, give us a sign. Let God verify that that you are who you say you are. And what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't have to answer them. Jesus could ignore this. Jesus could walk away. It's the grace of God that he responds, and he responds in a way that I think speaks to us as well as it speaks to them. He says, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and something greater than Solomon is here. 
So this is the first part of his response. We'll get, we'll get to the, the rest of it in a moment. But the first part of his response is basically the background to all of his answer. And that's when he says, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. And adulterous is the key word here. What, what happens with adultery? Well, one chooses to have a relationship that's inappropriately intimate with someone that you're not in covenant with. And that's what Jesus is condemning here. And what is the adulterous relationship? Well, go back and look at the rest of the discourse in Matthew 12. They condemn him for healing on the Sabbath. They condemn him for casting out demons. They basically are saying, you're not like the rest of us. Prove where you come from. And the reason for this is that so much of what Jesus does undermines their understanding of themselves. If Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, if he's acting and healing and working in the name of God, and if he's also breaking their rules, making friends with sinners, offering forgiveness, then they don't know who they are anymore. Ultimately, and you'll see this throughout the book of Matthew, the dynamic that's taking place between Jesus and these religious leaders is a conflict about power. These leaders are, in a sense, enshrined in their culture as having a monopoly on religion in their day. They've got it figured out. They're God's men. They're the ones with the answers. And suddenly, from some backward town called Nazareth, comes a man without any credentials, without the appropriate seminary degree, and he starts speaking on behalf of God in a way that undermines them. Matthew's gospel gives us the phrase, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is present. That's what that phrase means. And Jesus' message is that God is ready for relationship with ordinary people. The need for human mediators is going away. And that threatens these people's sense of power and authority. It's an ordinary but sinful impulse on the part of humanity to place obstacles in the way of people coming to God. If I can find ways to convince you that you need me in order to gain access to God or to grace or to the good life, then I gain power over you. This is the dynamic that leads to spiritual abuse of all kinds. It leads to celebrity pastors that convince you that their way is the only way, and if you buy their books and attend their conferences and give them your money, you'll find your way to God in the good life that's attendant with God's promises and presence. But Jesus shows up, and as we saw in Matthew 11 just a few weeks ago, he says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. No need for another mediator. Come directly to Jesus. Come directly to him. Let him teach you. Let him lead you. Follow the path that he holds out. And that is always, all the way through history, threatening to those who are powerful. Because if we have direct access to God in Jesus then every kind of human authority is diminished. This is why Luther wrote his 95 theses and nailed them to the Wittenberg door. We need no other mediator. What this reveals then is that the true nature of the religious leaders' commitments. They aren't living holy lives because they're trying to please God. They're not obeying the Sabbath laws as an act of worship. They aren't engaged in a real relationship with Yahweh. Their commitment is to their identity as being the kind of people who do those things. So I'm a writer. Uh, I've written a, a few books. Writing's really, really hard. Uh, I'm actually in the middle of writing a book right now, and the process kind of feels excruciating. Uh, 
Um, especially when you're writing to a deadline. I think it was Douglas Adams, the guy who wrote Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, who said that I really love, I really love deadlines. I love the whooshing sound they make as they fly right by. <laughs> I'm about to email that quote to my editor. Um, one of the pieces of advice that I've often heard older writers give to younger writers is this. Do you really want to write or do you really want to have written? In other words, do you love the craft, the work of showing up and grinding out words every single day, or do you love the idea of being able to tell somebody, yeah, I wrote a book? And what's interesting to me about that is it's, it's a great metaphor for kind of all of life, all of the things we would like to be and like to accomplish. For example, I would like to have six-pack abs. I apparently do not want to live the lifestyle that makes for six-pack abs. I doubt I'm alone in this, and I will be eating a burrito after church today. For the religious leaders and the Pharisees, though, and for many of the first century Jews, their commitment was not to the relationship with God that their religion offered them, but it was to the exceptional status, the privilege, the identity, and the power that came from being obedient to the law. Jesus shattered that power dynamic because he showed up loving, healing, and inviting others into relationship with him indiscriminately. Consider what a hazard that is for all of us. We're all prone to the self-deception that our obedience to some moral code is more important than the relationship with God who establishes that moral code. I talked about this a little bit a few weeks ago at a Sojourn Network gathering that we had actually in this very room. Christians can either build lighthouses or they can build border fences. We can build a lighthouse where we say, here's Jesus, here's the good way, here's the good path, here's the gospel, let me hold this out for you and invite you to come and join it. Or we can build border fences and spend our time bickering about who's in and who's out of the border. I'm not suggesting that orthodoxy and discernment don't matter, but I would argue that Jesus' model of ministry was marked less by border policing and more by an invitation to the light. Practically, I think that means that all of us should be able to look at the world around us and say, come to Jesus, whoever you are, wherever you're coming from, whatever you've done, whatever you're going through right now, come to him and trust him, and then we can start sorting out the details of your orthodoxy from there. Because this is the way that Jesus lived and ministered, including throughout Matthew chapter 12. It's what leads the Jews in power to question him and to challenge his authority. And as a result, Jesus won't play their game. They ask him for a sign, and in spite of all of the evidence he's already given them about who he is and what he's there to do, he won't participate. And instead, he says, none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So let's talk about Jonah for a minute. We're, we're told a certain bedtime story about the prophet Jonah, and, and it's sort of a cute story about a guy and a fish, right? Jonah gets called by God to, uh, uh, to go preach uh, and to go warn the Ninevites that they need to repent. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He's afraid, gets on a boat, and the boat, the boat sails sort of in the opposite direction of where he's supposed to be. And a storm comes. And Jonah says, you know, Jonah's asleep below decks. The storm comes. 
they come and wake him up. They're like, our boat is sinking. We're in trouble. And he says, it's my fault. This is the wrath of God coming after me because I haven't obeyed him. If you throw me overboard, everything will be okay. So they throw him overboard. He gets swallowed by a fish. And he's there for three days and three nights until he repents. When he repents, the fish spits him up on the shores and he goes to Nineveh and he warns them of God's impending wrath. Everyone in Nineveh repents and that's the end of the story. And all of that's untrue, but there's an important factor of this version that gets, that gets overlooked sometimes. Because Jonah's refusal to go to Nineveh isn't primarily about his fear of the Ninevites. It's about his disgust for them. We see that in the end of the book when Jonah, after going to town and saying, God's wrath is coming, you're all doomed, you know, you're in big trouble, you're going to be punished. He basically goes outside of town, sets up a shelter, pops some popcorn, and says, all right, let's watch the fireworks happen. Let's see the, the, the fire and brimstone. But instead, the Ninevites repent, and God doesn't punish them. Instead, God asks Jonah, should I not love that great city? You see, fundamentally, what's so important and interesting about the book of Jonah isn't that Jonah got swallowed by a big fish and lived to tell the tale. What's inspiring and powerful about the book of Jonah is that God loved Nineveh, a city that wasn't Jewish. So for a first century Jew, that part of the tale would have been the scandal. The miracle for them wouldn't have been nearly as difficult to believe as it would be for us, the miracle that he survived. So then we can see two meanings in the sign of Jonah right away. The first is that those who think they're insiders, as Jonah did as a Jew, will discover that God's love is much wider than they think. The sign of Jonah is that God loves Nineveh, that God loves Gentiles, that God loves outsiders and outcasts. He means to bring redemption and restoration to the whole world and not just to Israel. So for the religious leaders and the Pharisees and for many of the first century Jews, their commitment was not to the relationship with God that their religion offered them, but to their exceptional status, the privilege, the power that being obedient afforded them. Like Jonah, they took exception to the idea that God's love might be extended beyond their ethnic and tribal boundaries. But God does exactly that. And that's why Jesus says this. He says, The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came to the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. And what do the men of Nineveh and the queen of the south have in common? They're not Jews. They're outsiders. And yet God folds them in to his family. This is actually a theme that takes place throughout the book of Matthew where Jesus keeps breaking down the border walls for access into God's kingdom. We saw it a few weeks back in Matthew chapter 8. Let's hear that story again. This comes from Matthew 8 verse 5. It says, When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. And we've got to remember this this is a centurion, this is a Roman, this is not a Jew. And Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. 
For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. I tell that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. I think it's important for us to hear these stories and to realize that this isn't just about Jews and Gentiles. It's about the fact that God's love and mercy is much wider than even you and I think or imagine. Continuing with the, the passage in Matthew 12, Jesus says, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through the arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I'll return to the house I left, and when it arrives, it finds the house, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself. And they go in and they live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. Now, I think it's really important for us to recognize here that Jesus is being figurative. This is a metaphor. He's not talking about what happens when you cast a demon out of a person. He's talking about his life and his ministry. He's there in Israel to purify it from a stagnant, power-hungry kind of religiosity that is devoid of God's presence and God's grace. Instead, he brings love, he brings healing, he brings signs and wonders and miracles and the promise that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What he's warning then is if they reject that message, then something far worse that came before will happen to them. In this way, many commentators see this as a foreshadowing of what happens to Jerusalem in 70 AD when the Romans will destroy the temple and the Jews will be scattered for the better part of 2,000 years. The broader point is that there's something worse about the rejection of Jesus than there is of the ignorance of Jesus. This kind of brings us back to last week's sermon on the, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. There's something dangerous about hearing the good news. It means to be reckoned with, and if we reject it, the consequences are dire. When I first looked at this passage, I actually really struggled to make the connection between these verses and the preceding verses about the sign of Jonah. But uh, in looking further at it, and frankly, in talking to Jonathan Pennington about it, I highly recommend having a friend that's a Matthewan scholar, if you're ever preaching on Matthew. Uh, um, it makes complete sense because it's a continuance of the warning. It's a continuance of the warning about the sign of Jonah, about what happens when you reject the ministry of Jesus. The rejection of Jesus' grace will lead us into far worse places than we can imagine. And then, after he says all of this, this remarkable scene takes place. It starts in verse 46. It says, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak with him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And he replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. 
So imagine this for a moment. Jesus is teaching and his family shows up. And what's implied here in the text is that they're essentially saying, hey, they're showing up to, to kind of take him back to Nazareth. They're showing up to say, hey, maybe you should tone this stuff down a little bit. And that's why he responds the way he responds. It's not an outright rejection of his family. In fact, his family will eventually come to see him as the Messiah and to follow him. But it's once again a commentary on who's in and who's out of the kingdom. Those who follow Jesus, whoever does the will of my father, as he puts it, they're in. That's the family. Jesus talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, uh, in Matthew 7, 24, he said, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Jesus is continually telling us throughout the book of Matthew that those who do what he says are his disciples. Those are his family. Those are the ones in his kingdom. So if you take this whole passage together, you see this. You see that inclusion in the family of God, inclusion in the kingdom of God, is not about ethnicity or tribal identity. It's not about knowledge, the pride of the Pharisees. It's not about what you know. The Pharisees had all the right answers. They were good Bible-believing Jews. But it wasn't sufficient because they didn't have relationship with God. They didn't see Jesus for who he was. And it's not about bloodlines. Jesus' family clearly did not see what was happening at the time. He tells us that it's about doing the will of the Father and trusting in his Son. And I think this has a lot of interesting implications for us. We should ask ourselves, given what Jesus tells us about who's in and who's out, we should ask ourselves, who are we writing out of the family of God? Matthew, and more particularly Jesus, throughout the book, is announcing that the kingdom's doors are open wide. And look, we live in weird times. We live in weird uh, spiritual times, weird religious times. You know, ever since the Protestant Reformation, the church is divided and divided and divided. I remember there's a, there's a great joke by Emo Phillips. I'll try to tell a short version of it, but he says, you know, one day I'm walking, walking down the street, and I come to this bridge, and I see this guy, he's about to jump off the bridge. And I say, no, 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 don't jump off the bridge. You have so much to live for. And he says, well, what do I have to live for? And he says, well, do you believe in God? He says, yes, I do. He says, are you a Christian? He says, yes, I am. He says, are you Protestant or Catholic? He says, I'm Protestant. Are you Baptist or Presbyterian? And he says, I'm Baptist. And he says, are you uh, a Baptist with the confession from 1689 or the Baptist with the confession from 1819? And he said, I'm, a, I'm an 1819 Baptist. And so I pushed him off the bridge. <laughs> but the joke gets to the truth. We are who we are in this very church because we think we're right about some very important things. But notice what Jesus says. It's not about who's got the right answers, but about who does what he says. That's the distinguishing reality for Jesus. Are you willing to follow him? Are you willing to do what he says? And on the flip side of this, you have to ask, who are you writing out of God's story? Who did you think would never be part of the kingdom? Who do you think is not part of the kingdom? And why do you think they're not part of the kingdom? Who isn't good enough? Who isn't smart enough? Who isn't right enough to be called one of God's followers? 
I remember in high school, I had this friend, a guy named John, and uh, uh, John, was, John was an angry atheist, right? Like, there's people who just kind of don't believe in God, and then there's people who don't believe in God and are mad about it, right? John was one of those. And, you know, I would always invite him to stuff at, at my church, and, and we would always engage on these things, and he loved to argue about it, and it went on for years, and he would always, you know, frankly make fun of me for believing in, in Jesus. And a couple of years ago, um, there was a, a priest at St. Francis in the Fields down the road here named J.D. Koch, who I became friends with, and he invited me to come in and do this. They would do these forums uh, throughout, the, throughout Advent. He invited me to come in and do one of these forums. And sure enough, I show up at this thing, and I, and, you know, I give a talk. And at the, end of the, at the end of the talk, at the end of the night, I'm standing down front talking to J.D., and sure enough, up, up comes John. And I couldn't, have, I couldn't have been more shocked. I couldn't have been more stunned. Because John lived near J.D., and they'd become friends, they'd become friends, and he'd spent a lot of nights sitting on the back porch at J.D.'s house talking through these things, and it came to faith. Can you imagine how stunned people were when Paul showed up at his first church gathering? How crazy it seemed. And look, I really hate doing this because it's kind of low-hanging fruit, but Kanye, y'all, <laughs> right? Like, isn't, like, something is happening. Something is happening. And we have to ask ourselves, who else have we written out of God's grace? And maybe that's you. Maybe you've written yourself out of God's grace. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, you don't know what I've done, what I've thought, who I've hurt. That may all be true. But the only thing that keeps you from Jesus is your willingness to follow him. His mercies are new every morning, including this one. I started off about talking about our sense of disenchantment and contrasting it with how a first century person would have encountered Jesus. But what's interesting to notice, though, is that even they wanted a sign. They wanted some kind of objective evidence that Jesus was who he said he was, regardless of how much evidence they already had. It was never going to be enough. And he says the sign they get is the sign of Jonah. And so that's true for us. Those of us that are looking for a sign, that are looking for God to immediately answer some kind of prayer or, or show us something miraculous to convince us to follow him, Jesus tells us the only sign you're going to get, the only thing you can count on, is the sign of Jonah. So that's an interesting thing to think about. How else was Jonah a sign? Jesus makes reference here to the three days he'll spend in the tomb before his resurrection. But there's another kind of straightforward reference that might be overlooked. It was interesting as I did some of the research for this and, and looked at the book of Jonah, especially a couple of years ago, I preached through the book of Jonah. And I found that Jewish scholars pointed something out that a lot of Christian scholars just didn't seem to notice. I don't know why. What do you think happens to your body to your skin, to your appearance, if you spend three days in the belly of a fish that's trying to digest you. That when the fish expels Jonah from its belly, it vomits. Jonah comes out with stomach acid and with bile. What would Jonah look like when he shows up in Nineveh? He'd be horrific. 
He'd be a vision of death, a dead man walking, a vision of God's judgment. No wonder people repented, right? <laughs> if someone shows up looking like a zombie and they say, the wrath of God is coming, you're going to go, oh, I believe you. And we have exactly that. We have exactly that vision in the cross. A vision of death, of wrath, of judgment. Ultimately, the sign of Jonah is the sign of the cross, and the sign of the cross is a sign of defeat. It's where we turn when we acknowledge, in contrast to the arrogance of Jonah and the righteousness of the Pharisees, that we don't have it all together. And that we're in desperate need, not just of healing, not just of a fix, not just of self-help, but of salvation. The cross is a vision of what our efforts, our righteousness has earned us. And it's a vision of the mercy of God that he would take that punishment on himself in order to set us free. This is what we remember each week when we gather at the Lord's table. And we remember that on the night he was betrayed, our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Savior, Jesus Christ, took a loaf of bread and broke it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper and he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant sealed with the shedding of my blood. We gather at this table and we remember the cross. We remember the sign of Jonah. We remember the condemnation that the Lord took upon himself in order to set us free. Historically, when the church comes to the table, one of the phrases that gets repeated in liturgies of cross traditions, they say Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. And we celebrate that here today as we come to the table. So let's pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east.